0: The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University.
1: This is eConversations,
0: a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sauter, of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Banks occasionally fail in the United States, but the failure of Silicon Valley Bank in March 2023 created a wave of concern in financial markets. What went wrong at SVB, and did the bank receive a bailout? What are the costs when banks or depositors get bailed out? And why do investors in financial markets get so rattled when banks are in trouble? Joining me on eConversations today to discuss this is Mr. Peter Earl of the American Institute for Economic Research. Peter holds a bachelor's in engineering from West Point and master's degrees in economics and finance. And he worked on Wall Street as a trader and an analyst for over twenty years. He now reach, researches and writes about financial markets for AIER. Welcome back to the show, Pete. Great to be back. Well, so let, let's get started here. Uh, before we get into anything more, uh, tell us a little bit, how is it that a, a bank uh, actually fails in this case? Because you know, as depositors, we think of it like as a place we have our money in, but a bank also is a, a business with uh, some capital being contributed. So tell us a little
1: bit what it means for a bank to, to fail, as SBB did. Sure, so, so the failure of a bank can occur for several reasons. Uh, The main manifestation of bank failure is when the market value of its assets uh, fall below the market value of its liabilities. what that means is that the bank's ability to cover the withdrawal of deposits is impaired.
0: Okay. And Mm -hmm. then that's what happened uh, to to the Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, But before we get into some of the details of that, the SVV was described as a regional bank. And, And some people pointed that like regional banks weren't, uh, subject to the same level of scrutiny in, in the aftermath of, of, of Dodd-Frank as, as some of the largest banks. You now What is meant by a, a regional bank, and, and what, what's the difference
1: between that and some of the, the largest national banks? So a regional bank is essentially uh, a bank that specializes in local lending, um, the theory goes back to a less technologically advanced era when, uh, lending was more of a personal business mm-hmm. and the banker would know the local area, uh, they'd know the people, they would probably know what sort of businesses were likely to succeed and which weren't. Uh, but today there's a regulatory definition. Uh, the federal reserve, which is a bank regulator, regu- regulator. In addition to the agency, which plans and executes monetary policy defines a regional bank as one with between 10 and a hundred billion dollars in assets. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so mm-hmm. they're sort of like the medium-sized banks, although SVB got up right. to be, I think, the 16th largest bank in the country uh, w- when it failed. So, you right. one thing that happens, one reason mar- markets get jittery when banks are in trouble is, is we can have something called a bank run. And you, already, you hinted at this because we were saying that if a bank loses some of their of market value of its assets, it may not be able to meet uh, all of the depositors' uh, uh, demands if they should want to withdraw their money. So tell us a little bit what goes on with a bankrupt run and then how sometimes even like a sound bank could uh, uh, fail due to a bank run.
1: Right, so a run on a bank is when depositors uh, suspect or actually find out uh, that a bank at which they have deposits is either unable or likely to be unable to make them whole. In other words, if I have $100 at a bank and someone tells me or I figured out that the bank's assets may be dwindling or even gone, I'm going to go to the bank in a hurry and uh, probably try to withdraw my $100. Mm -hmm. The problem here is that owing to fractional reserve banking, uh, banks are rarely liquid enough to cover the full amount of their liabilities instantaneously. Uh, So they can't, they couldn't Technically, pay out all their deposits immediately if there was, um, you know, a rush uh, to to demand the, those those balances. So, you know, they may have 50 billion in assets, 40 billion in liabilities, but say only 10 or 20 billion in liquid in cash. Mm-hmm. So that's why rumors can be really devastating for banks because a rumor that a bank's in trouble can start a run, which quickly becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And um, if any of the viewers of this show are planning on going to grad school, I'd recommend look up the uh, diamond Dibvig model which sort of illustrates the way uh, liquid assets and, and uh, or illiquid assets and liquid uh, liabilities can play out when it comes to banks.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, during the Great Depression, I mean, as a bank runs, we're, we're causing uh, led we're the primary cause of almost a quarter of the nation's banks failing, and, and right. like a complete collapse of our, our financial institutions then. But we did, during the Great Depression in 1933, we we, uh, introduced deposit insurance to help counter this. And so you might think that now that we have deposit insurance, uh, we we shouldn't face this. But tell us a little bit how how the deposit insurance works, because we'll have to come back to this later on, because this is all all part of this this story. But tell us, first off, uh, what's involved with deposit insurance and how it normally works.
1: Right. So, so deposit insurance is essentially a government program, although there are private programs, but usually we're talking about the, uh, the FDIC, that's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Um, and they promise that if you have a certain balance in a bank account up to a certain level, you'll be made whole for that amount, often very quickly if a bank fails. Now, if you have as little as a penny, this is theoretically now, of course, if you have as little as a penny more than the balance, uh, uh, which is in, in, in which uh, your your account balance is not covered, uh, you could lose it. <laughs> so, the current FTC insurance coverage limit is two hundred fifty thousand dollars per depositor per bank per ownership category. So, if you had technically say two hundred fifty thousand one dollar in such an account, you may lose a dollar. Um, in the case of SVB, though, is much more than that. But I, I, yeah. I, I don't think we want to get ahead of ourselves at this yeah. point. That's how deposit insurance works. Yeah. Okay. So
0: now let's try to start to get into the, the, the problems that we had that SVB ran into. It was related to interest rates, and the, of course, uh, the Federal Reserve it was raising interest rates starting back in 2022 uh, to help control yep. inflation but that, that ended up causing problems for uh, Silicon
1: Valley Bank. So tell us a little bit how, how that uh, panned out. So the failure of Silicon Valley Bank had to do with what's called the duration gap. And that's basically an asset liability mismatch caused by interest rates mm-hmm. in, in, in banking. Uh, short-term liabilities, that's deposit accounts and and, and and CDs and that sort of thing, fund long-term assets. So deposits are used to make loans, to purchase securities and that sort of thing. The problem is that short-term liabilities have variable rates and deposits are on demand so they can leave the bank at any moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are funding these assets to tend to be things like treasury bonds, long-term agency securities, all that sort of thing. So uh, those long-term assets tend to pay a fixed rate. So you've got sort of liquid short-term assets with variable rates funding long-term assets, which are pretty illiquid and pay fixed rates. Um, That's essentially what happened. And and while this is what, while this event and we can get more into it is what killed Silicon Valley Bank. I would note that um, right now, You know, months later, uh, U.S. banks are still sitting on something like $650 billion worth of unrealized losses Mm. because of these mismatches. So, you know, it it was fatal for a few banks, but there are many that are still uh, having trouble because of it.
0: And so, I mean, the the, the problem being is that if you've got like especially loans that are out at a a fixed interest rate and then that um, uh, the rate that you have to pay on deposits, because if you're not paying it as one bank, somebody can take their money and, and, and put it somewhere else to try to, to get that better rate. At the very least, it's going to right. squeeze your profits. And, and, but in, in Silicon Valley's uh, case, it, it actually led to them having some uh, losses from treasury bonds. So uh, tell us a little bit, about how is it that, that if you're holding treasury bonds at one interest rate, in, in an environment of rising interest rates, you could end up suffering uh,
1: losses on, on those treasury bonds? Sure. So uh, so the Fed controls really the first year or so of the yield curve, right? So as the Fed began raising rates, they began raising rates very aggressively. And when these rates were rising, they ranged from, say, quarter or half of a percent by three uh, th- 75 basis point moves. You're already talking about the target rate of interest rates being suddenly in a few months between, I guess it was two and a quarter and two and a half percent. Uh, now, originally, uh, Silicon Valley Bank was paying out, let's say, half to three quarters of one percent. And what it was receiving on its long end from the uh, agency and long term uh, treasury bonds was, let's say, I'm going to guess two, two and a quarter percent, which is a good business. You know, if you're borrowing at a quarter or a half percent and then you're being paid at another rate. That sounds, you know, that that's a good business. What happened was over in a short amount of time, the short end where they had to pay out to depositors in order to keep them, you know, invested in their accounts and not looking for other forms of return was higher than the agency and treasury rates they're receiving on the long end. So suddenly you're losing money and you have not only are you losing money in terms of taking in less than you're paying out, but also you have a loss of deposits that are going into now more competitive investments like some certain bonds, maybe into CDs, maybe into other banks' uh, deposit accounts. So, it's a problem. And that's that's how everything started. And so then,
0: if you had a treasury bond that maybe had a multi-year duration, but it was going to pay like right. 2 or 3%, and interest rates start to rise, all of a sudden, like nobody really sort of wants to hold a, a bond that's paying 2% when uh, interest rates have gone up to 5 or 6 or, or 7%, because that's not a, a very attractive bond anymore, right?
1: Right. And the, and the other thing is that that end of the, uh, the yield curve, those really long-dated agency and U.S. Treasury securities, is extremely illiquid. It's one thing to buy those bonds. It's another thing to sell them. Um, mm-hmm. Usually, you only get maybe some Treasury dealers buying selectively or insurance companies out there. So it's very illiquid. So if you were to say, uh, as Silicon Valley Bank did at some point, try to sell a couple of billion dollars worth of long term treasuries, you're going to have a lot of market impact. You're going to have to basically sell lower in the market than you would want to mm-hmm. in order to uh, get somebody to uh, to buy your holdings. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but basically that's what happened is the bank determined that uh, its, uh, its, its liabilities, the deposits were leaving at a rate which eventually might have impaired its ability to pay. So what it decided to do was try to liquidate some of its treasury holdings. And in so doing, it took some pretty heavy losses.
0: No. You've explained to me before, so let's just see if we can get into this, that, that uh, other banks didn't uh, all, all fail from this, this problem. And, and there, there is something uh, technically, it, it's a bit of a, a technical thing because I, I wasn't completely familiar with it until you, you were explaining it to me. Right. But there is something called an interest rate swap that could be used to help protect your, uh, protect your position on these uh, treasury bonds. So you've, you've got a bond and the, the interest rates are going up and that bond's not going to be very attractive and you're looking at either taking a loss on it or you could do something else uh, to, to prior to have
1: hedged your, your position, I guess is one way to describe it. So tell us about this. Sure. So I, I should also mention here that a lot of these bonds were purchased, these treasury bonds and some of these agency securities were purchased when interest rates were very low. Mm-hmm. So the price and the uh, the price of, of a bond and the interest rate move inversely. So when interest rates were very low, the prices of these bonds were near record highs. So essentially, a lot of these banks top ticked the market. They paid you know the highest of the high prices that they could have over say a twenty year period for these bonds. And the minute that interest rates started to rise, the price began to fall, and they began to lose on the principal basis on mm-hmm. the face. But. Yeah. There's a few ways that banks can, can, can hedge against adverse uh, interest rate moves. One way is to just try to diversify as much as possible, to try to buy bonds of varying maturities, uh, such that they have exposure in the one to five year, five to seven year, nine to 11, and then so on. So they're pretty much equally rated based upon what they think. You know, there's, there's an element of, um, of uh, uh, forecasting and speculation here, based upon what they think the future of monetary policy and interest rates is. But that's difficult for a regional bank. Although what, what, what banks and other firms can do is they can swap out their interest rate exposure using an interest rate swap, which means for a fee, a firm like Silicon Valley Bank would, 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 would go to an investment bank and some sort of financial institution, and they would basically pay to receive a, um, a variable rate and, swa- and swap out their fixed rates. So somewhere out there, there's a firm that has variable rates that would like to have fixed rates. And so what, what an investment bank would do is find the other side of that trade and basically say, okay, Silicon Valley Bank, We've set this up so, as you receive fixed payments, those are going to go somewhere else. And as this bank or this other financial institution, you may not even know, receives variable payments, those will get paid to you. And what that means is that you're going to have a flow of income. Your interest, your interest is going to float with interest rates instead of being stuck at a level where you're, uh, where you're, you know, constantly falling short of where inflation actually is.
0: So yeah, so. Yeah, rising interest rates would cause a problem, but uh, again, as often there is in in, uh, financial markets, there is some way to to sort of protect your position and and not take as big a loss as you would have otherwise. I mean, you'd have to pay some money to get one of those uh, uh, swaps, but you wouldn't lose as much as you would if, if you were in an unprotected position.
1: Yeah, at the time, so the thing is, a lot with a lot of these hedges and things, you want to have them on before you're in trouble. Yeah. If you go uh, to, a, to an investment bank and to another, you know, large financial institution, you try to put these on when there's a lot of volatility and when there's a lot of stress in the market, you're going to pay a higher amount. Now, of course, I would rather pay a higher amount than go, you know, than become insolvent, but it would have been costly to put on an interest rate swap in uh, March or April of 2022, but it probably would have saved the bank, who can yeah. say? There's another thing that a bank can do and that's called immunizing the book. And all that means is, is entering into a series of trades which shift the weighted average maturity of the of, of the uh, bond holdings. So if SVB, which was really heavy in long-term bonds, had undertaken a series of trades, which also might've been costly, um, they could have swapped out, I shouldn't use the word swap in this context, they could have traded away some of their say 20 to 30 year exposure in exchange for say 10 to 20 year 10 to 15 year exposure um, and that would have reduced their exposure hmm. um, even that's questionable though because again markets have become very liquid and there's a lot of volatility but still these are things that they could have done and uh, hopefully uh, or, or not even hopefully but I, I expect some banks actually did this at the time and that's why we had a limited number of true uh, you know failures and uh, and banks in distress at that time
0: yeah and, and you were mentioning that, like, that you know, although these are things I wasn't familiar with. If, if you're in the uh, I- industry, if you're in finance, you know what these things are. And at some level, it was sort of like uh, uh, malfeasance on, on the part of the people running Silicon Valley Bank that they didn't, uh, that they didn't take some of these steps. Yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's mal- a lot I could say about, a, <laughs> about that. Malfeasance might be a little strong, but it it, it, it it wasn't like this this is uh something nobody else would would know about
1: yeah so i mean there's a few issues we can talk about um distractions from the business of running a bank later if you'd like yeah. another thing is that um uh w- without becoming too condemning, I would say that, you know, a lot of people rise to the top in financial institutions, maybe not by being the best at what they do, but by sort of outsitting their opponents. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know if this is the case with Silicon Valley Bank, but I certainly saw in the financial markets in my time there, that a lot of times the people who are running banks or running trading desks, were not necessarily the best traders, but maybe they were the most politically adept, mm-hmm. or maybe they were just the ones who had, uh, you know, avoided controversy, even when there was a good, you know, even when there's something to be controversial about or, you know, raise an unpopular opinion to. So there's a lot of reasons why uh they might not have had these uh these swaps on and actually another thing dan if you don't mind uh we have to remember that we haven't had inflation like this since since you and i were kids yeah so you know this is a lot of knowledge in finance and economics is cyclical and it's not cumulative so many of these people even if they entered the business in say 1985 they were never around this type of inflation and this type of interest rate volatility so uh one could understand how this might not have been right uh you know, at the front of their uh, book of strategy uh, as things began to get messy in the uh, spring of 2022. So
0: we mentioned uh, deposit insurance and uh, yeah, so Silicon Valley bank was taking some losses. Uh, And normally that wouldn't necessarily cause all the depositors to run and get their money out of the uh, bank because if you know you've got uh, deposit insurance and you're gonna be protected on that, they wouldn't have to, but that wasn't the case with most of the, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank customers. I mean, they, they were, you, you mentioned this $250,000 uh, uh, limit for deposit insurance. They were well, many of them were well over that, right?
1: Yeah, I think the average account balance was something like $5 million. And, and what that means is that for the entire bank, about 95% of the actual deposits were statutorily uncovered. Yeah. They were, they, they, those, those balances should have been lost. But they weren't. The uh, the FDIC decided to step in and not only make their funds available because sometimes these bank resolutions take months and years to do, yeah. but also to make their the full amount of their of uh, their deposits available to them. So uh, it was a good time to be a uh, a Silicon Valley uh, bank share uh, a, a, a depositor at that time.
0: Right. Yeah, because because now, now we want to get into this question: Was this a, a bailout? And I mean, certainly, you know, you have to be careful here because. Uh, yes, there there was a, a change made that helped some people out, but there's the depositors and not the owners uh, of the bank. And you were mentioning before, uh, the, the owners of the bank were have been wiped out.
1: Yeah, so uh, the, 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 the price per share of Silicon Valley Bank was something like $250 at the start of 2023. By February, and it reached $333. And uh, this morning, in anticipation of this... Uh, this interview, I took a look and currently Silicon Valley, uh, Silicon Valley Bank stock is trading at nine cents per share. And it's actually, I mean, that's just a stub because the firm was actually taken over, or I should say taken under by JP Morgan. So yeah, equity shareholders were essentially wiped out. So there's no moral hazard in that respect. Now we could argue that perhaps there's an element of moral hazard felt or experienced by uh, by the depositors who were not taught a pretty harsh lesson about the limits of Federal deposit insurance, right. but uh, yeah, I mean that's uh, that, that, that's a different issue. The, any moral hazard um, to uh, to shareholders is absolutely marginal, if uh, if any at all.
0: And in in two thousand eight, uh, the, the bailouts came in and helped a, a lot of the uh, owners of at risk financial institutions. So this yep. was a very different thing. Uh, how you want to use the term bailout? Uh, you know, I guess you, you can always debate that, but this wasn't a bailout of the owners of the bank. They lost, and I think right. they had about 20 billion, a uh, billion with a B, uh, in, in uh, capital invested in the Silicon Valley Bank, yep. and like you said, that basically was completely, they they lost all of that money.
1: It's 99.9% yeah. wiped out, yeah. yeah.
0: And, and so then, you mentioned the term moral hazard, so if you can, explain to us uh, uh, what moral hazard means with regard to our, our banking system, and, and then we'll talk about whether this uh, worsened moral hazard.
1: Sure. So, so the basic definition of moral hazard is it's a, it's a set of circumstances where individuals have the opportunity to take an action, and they choose to do so because the consequences are likely to fall upon another party. So, for example, um, if the decision makers at a financial institution know that there are that they are working at a systemically important and thus likely to be rescued uh, institution if they suffer severe losses and become insolvent, you know, there's a game theoretic that comes into play of heads I win, tails you lose. Um, there's no reason not to swing for the fences and incur what would otherwise be catastrophic losses um, if someone else is going to foot the bill and and or, or cover those losses. So that's essentially how moral hazard manifests. And... Certainly, you know, in the aftermath of the uh,
0: bailouts of two, 2008, uh, people have, and the, the fact that many biz, uh, banks were declared to be too big to fail, that that has led yep. to a lot of a uh, moral hazard going forward, and, and that would be really problematic, because mm-hmm. as you said, now they actually know for sure they could uh, take very risky investments, and one of the things is, okay, if it, if, if it pays off, you get the money, and if if the uh, risky investment doesn't pay out, you have losses, you would be bankrupt, but you know you're going to get bailed out by the government. That's really not a game that uh, we want to, uh, our banks to be playing, because we'll lose as taxpayers, and it's also bad for our economy.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's that. And also, it's just this idea that um, it, it, it quashes the uh, you know sort of the incentive to innovate. Um, you know, for who, who's, who who wants to start a bank or a large financial firm? You know, when uh, when it's known that there are a number that sort of have the uh, have the Fed or the uh, or, or, or the Department of uh, the Treasury on speed dial, right? I mean, so uh, there's less incentive for that. Um, there's also just it, it's also just uh, it's bad for it's bad for the economy in terms of systemic risk. Um, there's a laundry list of problems that that come from moral hazard and uh, and. Uh, you get you tend to get better outcomes for the for the country and for the economy if there's more skin in the game. That's something that's been written about a lot: is, is is making sure the decision makers are on the hook for their own decisions. And
0: so then let's get into you know, at the time a few months ago when this was happening, there was a, a number of concerns, a, a number of commentators raising concerns that this would make uh, would just worse this bailout of the depositors would make the uh, moral hazard problem worse. But, uh, you know, I guess my feeling on that at, at the time, and it's, it's not changed, is that this is a, not a, a huge change in terms of the moral hazard. You, you, we, we had $20 billion. We had the owners of that bank lose $20 billion. I, I assume they didn't want to lose that money. I assume that they were motivated to monitor exactly what the people running the bank were doing with their money and not, right. you know, and not go out there and lose their money uh, for them. And but, you know, the, so the only effect where you could say, well, you know, perhaps these large depositors could have been mm. riding herd on, on the people running the bank. And, and but you really would have to try to say that you needed both the large depositors and the you know, owners of the bank to, to try to control the, the, the people making decisions for the bank. And I know it might work out that way, but it seems to me that's rather a kind of a, a very marginal uh, increase in moral hazard.
1: Yeah, I, I, I generally agree with that. Yeah. I think if there was a concern, it's that the uh, the deposits of that bank were really heavily dominated. It was a very narrow depo- uh, depositor base, which means it was very limited in terms of its diversification. You had mostly tech firms and also some of the uh, Northern uh, Marin County, California, uh, winemakers and that sort of thing. So, I think the concern was if a huge number, you know, thousands of small tech firms were suddenly unable to reach their 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 cash. Mm-hmm. were unable to access their bank accounts. Uh, that could send the economy of California into a tailspin, and then the U.S. So it's not systemic risk in the same sense that, say, Lehman Brothers or AIG financial uh, products might have been, but it's systemic risk in another way. Still, um, you know, the bank wasn't rescued, but the shareholder, uh, the uh, the depositors rather, were uh, saved from the error of their ways. So. You know, well, I guess we'll have to see over time if there are any, uh, uh, you know, long-term implications of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, it does seem like Silicon Valley Bank had this very unusual. They were very big into venture capital, and like you said, they had these uh, tech firms yep. that were. Uh, um, and, and again, you know, simply for if there were, if those firms' money had been tied up for a year or so, even you know, they, they might eventually, they might have eventually gotten all or most of their money back. But just having it right. tied up for a, a year could mean that they, they can't make payroll, they can't do
1: do the other things they need to do to run their businesses. Yep, I mean at that time there was a lot of uncertainty, right? Nobody knew exactly how far and wide you know these bank uh, issues might go, um, whether you know what the state of the economy was going to be several weeks later. So uh, I understand I understand why what the incentives were for the government to make those decisions. I may not agree with them, but I understand you know they were facing a lot of uncertainty themselves. Yeah. Well.
0: The Silicon Valley Bank was very prominent, it was a very prominent spokesperson for what's called ESG uh, investing. And for a bank, they were quite uh, vocal about what they were doing in ESG. Tell us very briefly what is ESG and could that have had any uh, impact on this failure?
1: Yeah, so ESG is essentially a, uh, a, a, um, a framework for running uh, institutions like firms and all that. It, it stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, and it espouses a whole series of... Uh, of ways that um, some people think businesses should be run in terms of their consciousness of the environment and all that. And uh, I was actually snooping around the SVB website uh, earlier this year, and uh, they had page after page of of ESG information on the bank, which I thought was kind of strange because it's a bank, you know. uh, Banks aren't really known for their carbon footprint. There's not a a coal plant or something like that, so uh, I would argue that um, Time and human resources or human capital being resources, even if a small portion of the effort that went into those extensive uh, ESG reporting and observance efforts uh, were directed at mitigation, that duration gap and the interest rate problems, um, yeah, the, the, the firm might have been around today. I think uh, even a small, a, a single interest rate swap might have helped, um, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of them mitigate a lot of the issues that eventually felled them. And it probably wouldn't have taken much away from their ESG intensive efforts.
0: Well, and and that's, you know, like you said, not only is is time and effort uh, limited, the time you spend on one thing you can't spend on something else. You also have the question of if you have people who think that the main point of running a bank is to make society better through ESG investing, they might not think that like the the, the details of like covering your interest rate position is very important. Well well thanks for yeah, it's, it's
1: probably more fun to write about oh sorry. Oh, oh I it's say, probably more fun to write about carbon footprints than to write about uh, uh, credit could, uh, uh, interest rate swaps. Could be. Well thanks so much,
0: Pete, <laughs> for coming on and talk about this with us. And thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University.